0: Section 7 of Broken Barriers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Kurt from Tucson, Arizona. Broken Barriers by Meredith Nicholson. Chapter 6, Parts 6-11. through 11. 6. Grace set off with the liveliest expectations to keep her appointment with Miss Reynolds. The house struck her at once as a true expression of the taste and characteristics of its owner. It was severely simple in design and furnishing, but with adequate provision for comfort. Grace had seen pictures of such rooms and magazines, and knew that they represented the newest ideas in house decoration. The neutral tint of the walls was an ease to eye and spirit. Ethel had spoken of Miss Reynolds as quaint, an absurd term to apply either to the little woman or any of her belongings. She was very much up to date, even a little ahead of the procession, it seemed to Grace. Oh, thank you. I'm glad if it seems nice, Miss Reynolds replied when Grace praised the house. All my life I've lived in houses where everything was old and the furniture's so heavy you had to get a derrick to move it on cleaning day. But I can't accept praise for anything here. The house was built for a family that moved away from town without occupying it. The young architect who designed it had ideas about how it ought to be fixed up, and I turned him loose. There was a music room, so I had to get a grand piano to fit into the alcove made for it. That young man is most advanced, and I thought at first he wouldn't let me have any place to sit down, but you see, he did allow me a few chairs. Are you freezing? I hate an overheated house. I'm perfectly comfortable, said Grace, noting that Miss Reynolds wore the skirt of the blue suit she had sold her with a plain white waist and a loose collar. Her snow-white hair was brushed back loosely from her forehead, her head was finely modelled, and her face, a glow from an afternoon tramp in the November air, still preserved the roundness of youth. The wrinkles, perceptible about her eyes and mouth, seemed out of place. Only tentative tracings, not the indelible markings of age. She had an odd little way of turning her head to one side when listening, and mistaking this for a sign of deafness, Grace had lifted her voice slightly. "'Now, my dear child,' cried Miss Reynolds, "'just because I cock my head like a robin, "'don't think I'm shy of hearing. "'It always amuses me to have people take it for granted "'that I can't hear. "'I hear everything. "'I sometimes wish I didn't hear so much. "'I've always had that trick. "'It's because one of my eyes is a bit stronger than the other. "'You'll find that I don't do it when I wear my glasses, "'but I usually take them off in the house.' At the table, Miss Reynolds rambled on as though Grace were an old friend. Our old house down on Meridian Street was sold while I was abroad. It had grown to be a dingy hole, garret full of trunks of letters and rubbish like that. I cabled at once to sell or destroy everything in the place, so that's why I'm able to have a new deal. Are you crazy about old furniture? Please tell me you're not. Oh, I like new things ever so much better, Grace assured her. I thought you would. I despise old furniture. Old stuff of every kind. Old people, too. With a smile on her lips, she watched Grace denote the effect of this speech. I shouldn't have dreamed of asking you to give up an evening for me if I meant to talk to you like an old woman. My neighbors are mostly young married people, but they don't seem to mind my settling among them. I'm 62. Hurry and say I don't look a day over 50. 40, Grace corrected. I knew I was going to like you. I think I'll spend my remaining years here if I can keep away from people who want to talk about old times. Meaning, of course, when I was a girl. It doesn't thrill me at all to know that right here where this house stands, my grandfather owned a farm. Every time I go downtown, I dodge old citizens I've known all my life for fear they'll tell me about the great changes and expect me to get tearful about it. I can't mourn over the passing of old landmarks, and I'd certainly not weep at the removal of some of the old fossils around this town who count all their money every day to make sure nobody's got a nickel away from them. They keep their lawyers busy tightening up their wills. They've invented ways of tying up property and trust so you can almost take it with you. That's their way of enjoying life, I suppose, remarked Grace, who was taking advantage of Miss Reynolds' talkativeness to do full justice to a substantial dinner. The filet of beef and the fresh mushrooms testified to the presence of an artist in the kitchen, and the hot rolls were of superlative lightness. Miss Reynolds paused occasionally to urge Grace to a second helping of everything offered. I detest anemic people, Miss Reynolds declared. If you don't eat my food, I'll feel terribly guilty at asking you here. It's the best food I ever ate. We were going to have corned beef and cabbage at home, so all these wonderful dishes seem heavenly. You've probably wondered why I grabbed you as I did and asked you to sit at meat with me. Why, I hope you ask me because you like me, Grace answered. That's the correct answer, Grace. May I call you Grace? I hate having a lot of people around. I like to concentrate on one person, and when I met you in the church entry, it just popped into my head that you wouldn't mind a bit giving me an evening. It's awfully tiresome going to dinners where the people are all my own age. I've always hated formal entertaining. You struck me as a very fair representative of the new generation that appeals to me so much don't look so startled. I mean that, my dear, as a compliment. And, of course, I really don't know a thing about you except that you have very pretty manners and didn't get vexed that day in the store when I must have frightened you out of your wits. But you didn't, Grace protested. I liked your way of saying exactly what you wanted. I always try to do that. It saves a lot of bother. And please don't be offended if I say that it's a joy to see you sitting right there looking so charming. You have charming ways, of course you know that, and the effect is much enhanced when you blush that way. Grace was very charming indeed as she smiled at her singular hostess, who had a distinct charm of her own. She felt that she could say anything to Miss Reynolds, and with girlish enthusiasm she promptly told her that she was adorable. "'I've been called a crank by experts,' Miss Reynolds said challengingly, "'as though she were daring her guests to refute the statement. "'I get along better with foreigners than with my own people. "'Over there they attribute my idiosyncrasies to American crudeness, "'to be tolerated only because they think me much better off in worldly goods than I really am. "'They remained at the table for coffee, "'and the waitress who had served the dinner offered cigarettes.' Grace shook her head and experienced a mild shock when Miss Reynolds took a cigarette and lighted it with the greatest unconcern. Abominable habit. Got in the way of it while I was abroad. Please don't let me corrupt you. I suppose I'll learn in time, Grace replied, amused as she remembered the stress her mother and Ethel had laid on Miss Reynolds' conservatism. It occurred to her that Miss Reynolds was entitled to know something of her history and she recited the facts of her life simply and straightforwardly. She had only said that her father had been unfortunate without explaining his connection with Cummings Derland. Miss Reynolds smoked and sipped her coffee in silence, then asked her in quick fashion, Cummings Derland? Those names tinkle together way back in my memory. Father and Mr. Cummings came here from Rangerton and began business together. The Cummingses used to live neighbors to us over by Military Park. Bob Cummings is one of my neighbors, said Miss Reynolds. Rather tragic, putting that young man into business. He hates it. There ought to be some way of protecting artistic young men from fathers who try to fit square pegs into round holes. I suppose the business troubles broke up the friendship of your families. Yes, my mother and sister are very bitter about it. They think father was unfairly treated. But I met Bob only this morning, and he was very friendly. He seemed terribly cut up because I'd left college. He's a sensitive fellow. He would feel it, said Miss Reynolds. So you children grew up together, the Durlins and the Cummings. I'm asking about your present relations because Bob comes in occasionally to play my piano. When there's something on at his own house that he doesn't like, His wife's the sort that just can't be quiet. Must have people around. She's crazy about bridge, and he isn't. He called me on the telephone just before you came to ask if he might come over after dinner, as his wife's having people in for bridge. I told him to come along. I enjoy his playing. He really plays very well indeed. You don't mind? Not at all, said Grace, wondering at the fate that was throwing her in Bob Cummings' way twice in one day, and a day in which she had been torn with so many conflicting emotions. If you have the slightest feeling about meeting him, do say so. You may always be perfectly frank with me. Yes, thank you, Miss Reynolds, but I'd love to hear Bob play. When they were again in the living room, Grace stood for a moment, scanning a table covered with periodicals and new books. "'Since I came home, I've been trying to find out what's going on in America, "'so I read everything,' Miss Reynolds explained. "'The general opinion seems to be that things are going to pot. "'Right under your hand, there's a book called "'Clues to a New Social Order, written by a woman named Trenton. "'I understand she's a respectable person and not a short-haired lunatic, "'but she throws everything overboard.' "'I read it,' said Grace. "'It's certainly revolutionary.' All of that, Miss Reynolds retorted, but it does make you think. Everybody's restless and crazy for excitement. My young married neighbors all belong to families I know or know about, live in very charming houses and have money to spend, too much most of them, and they don't seem able to stand an evening at home by themselves. But maybe the new way's better. Maybe their chances of happiness are greater where they mix around more. I'm curious about the whole business. These young folks don't go to church. Why don't they, when their fathers and grandfathers always did? Their parents stayed at home in the evening. My father used to grumble horribly when my mother tried to get him into a dress suit. But there was wickedness then, too. Only people just whispered about it and tried to keep it from the young folks. There were men right here in this town who sat up very proper in the churches on Sunday who didn't hesitate to break all the commandments during the week. But now you might think people were sending up fireworks to call attention to their sins. I remember the first time I went to a dinner, that was 30 years ago, where cocktails were passed around. It seemed awful, the very end of the world. But when I told my mother about it, she was horrified, said what she thought of the hostess who had exposed her daughter to temptation. But now Prohibition's driven everybody to drink. I asked my chauffeur yesterday how long it would take him to get me a quart of whiskey, and he said about a half an hour if I let him use the car. I told him to go ahead, and sure enough, he was back with it in 20 minutes. It was pretty fair whiskey, too, Miss Reynolds concluded. I was curious to see just how it felt to break the law, and I confess to you, my dear, that I experienced a feeling of exultation. She reached for a fresh cigarette and lighted it tranquilly. Everybody's down on the young people, said Grace, confident that she had a sympathetic listener. They tell us all the time that we're of no account. There are pages of that on that table, Miss Reynolds replied. Well, I'm for the young people, particularly you girls who have to rustle for yourselves. If I stood up in a store all day or hammered a typewriter, I'm sure I'd feel that I was entitled to some pleasure when I got through. Just what do girls do? I don't mean girls of your upbringing exactly and your schooling, but less lucky girls who manage their own affairs and are not responsible to anyone. I haven't been at work long enough to know much about that, said Grace. But nearly every girl who is at all attractive has a bow. Certainly. Miss Reynolds affirmed properly. It's always been so. There's nothing new in that. And they like to go to dances. Every girl likes to dance. And sometimes they're taken out to dinner or to a show if the young man can afford it. Girls don't have parties at home very much. I mean, even where they live at home. There's not room to dance, usually. The houses are too small, and it isn't much fun. And if the beau has a car, he takes the girl driving. And these girls marry and have homes of their own? That still happens, doesn't it? Well, a good many girls don't want to marry. Not the young men they're likely to meet. Or if they do, some of them keep on working. There are girls in Shipleys who are married and keep their jobs. They like the additional money. They can wear better clothes. And they like to keep their independence. There you are, Miss Reynolds exclaimed. The old stuff about woman's place being in the home isn't the final answer anymore. If you won't think it pertinent, just how do you feel on that point, Grace? Oh, I shouldn't want to marry for a long, long time, even if I had the chance, Grace answered with the candor Miss Reynolds invited. I've got that idea about freedom and independence myself. I hope I'm not shocking you. Quite the contrary. I had chances to marry myself, Miss Reynolds confessed. I almost did marry when I was 22, but decided I didn't love the young man enough. I had these ideas of freedom too, you see. I haven't really been very sorry. I suppose I ought to be ashamed of myself. But the man I almost married died miserably, an awful failure. I have nothing to regret. How about college girls? You must know a good many. Oh, A good many co-eds marry as soon as they graduate and settle down. But those I've known are mostly country town girls. I think it's different with city girls who have to go to work. They're not so anxious to get married. The fact seems to be that marriage isn't just the chief goal of a woman's life anymore. Things have reached such a pass that it's really respectable to be a spinster like me. But we all like to be loved, we women, don't we? And it's woman's blessing and her curse that she has love to give. She was silent a moment, then bent forward and touched Grace's hand. There was a mist of dreams in the girl's lovely eyes. I wish every happiness for you, dear. I hope with all my heart that love will come to you in a great way, which is the only way that counts. 7. A moment later, Bob Cummings appeared and greeted Grace with unfeigned surprise and pleasure. "'I'll say we don't need to be introduced. Grace and I are old friends,' he said, still unable to conceal his mystification at finding Grace established on terms of intimacy in his neighbor's house. "'I inveigled Grace here without telling her "'it was to be a musical evening,' said Miss Reynolds. "'Oh, I'd have come just the same,' laughed Grace. "'We'll cut the music now,' said Cummings.' It will be a lot more fun to talk. I tell you, Grace, it's a joy to have a place of refuge like this. Miss Reynolds is the kindest woman in the world. I've adopted her as my aunt. He bowed to Miss Reynolds and glanced from one to the other with boyish eagerness for their approval. That's the first I've heard of it, Miss Reynolds retorted with a grieved air. Why don't you tell him, Grace, that being an aunt sounds too old? You might both adopt me as a cousin." Grace and Bob discussed the matter with mock gravity and decided that there was no good reason why they shouldn't be her cousin. Then you must call me cousin Beulah, said Miss Reynolds. Her nephews and nieces were widely scattered, she said, and she didn't care for her lawful cousins. Grace talked much more freely under the stimulus of Bob's presence. It appeared that Miss Reynolds had not known Bob until she moved into the neighborhood and their acquaintance had begun quite romantically. Miss Reynolds had stopped him as he was passing her house shortly after she moved in and asked him whether he knew anything about trees. Some of the trees on her premises were preyed upon by malevolent insects, and quite characteristically she had halted him to ask whether he could recommend a good tree doctor. You looked intelligent, so I... Took a chance, Miss Reynolds explained, and the man you recommended didn't hurt the trees much. Only two died. I've bought a tree book, and hereafter I'll do my own spraying. When Miss Reynolds spoke of Mrs. Cummings, she referred to her as Evelyn, explaining to Grace that she was the daughter of an old friend. Evelyn, it appeared, was arranging a Thanksgiving party for one of the country clubs. Bob said she was giving a lot of time to it. It was going to be a brilliant affair. Then finding that Grace did not know Evelyn, and remembering that in all likelihood her guest wouldn't be invited to the entertainment, Miss Reynolds turned the talk into other channels. It was evident that Bob was a welcome visitor to Miss Reynolds' house, and that she understood and humored him and indulged and encouraged his chafing attitude towards her. That he should make a practice of escaping from a company at home that did not interest him was just like Bob. He was lucky to have a neighbor so understanding and amiable as Miss Reynolds. Perhaps again and often she would meet Bob at Miss Reynolds when he found Evelyn irksome. Grace rose and changed her seat, as though by so doing she were escaping from an idea she felt to be base, an affront to Miss Reynolds, an insult to Bob. The piano's waiting, Bob, and Miss Reynolds led the way to the music room across the hall. Bob began, as had always been his way, Grace remembered, by improvising, weaving together snatches of classical compositions with whimsical variations. Then, after a pause, he sat erect, struck into Schumann's Nachtstück, and followed it with Handel's Largo, and Rubinstein's Melody and F, all associated in her memory with the days of their boy and girl companionship. He shook his head impatiently, waited a moment, and then a new mood laying hold of him. He had recourse to Chopin and played a succession of pieces that filled the room with color and light. Grace watched the sure touch of his hands, marveling that he had been so faithful to the music that was his passion as a boy. It had always been his solace in the unhappy hours to which he had been a prey, as far back as she could remember. There was no questioning his joy in the great harmonies. He was endowed with a talent that had been cultivated with devotion, and he might have had a brilliant career if fate had not swept him into a business for which his temperament wholly unfitted him. While he was still playing, Miss Reynolds was called away by callers and left the room quietly. You and Bob stay here, she whispered to Grace. These people I have to see. When Bob ended with a Chopin valse, graceful and capricious, that seemed to Grace to bring the joy of spring into the room, he swung round, noted Miss Reynolds' absence, and then the closed door. My audience reduced one half, he exclaimed ruefully. At this rate, I'll soon be alone. Don't stop. Those last things were marvelous. Just one more. Do you remember how I cornered you one day in our old house? You were still wearing pigtails, and I told you I'd learned a new piece and you sat like a dear angel while I played this, my first showpiece. It was Mendelssohn's spring song, and she thrilled to think that he hadn't forgotten. The familiar chords brought back vividly the old times. He had been so proud and happy that day in displaying his prowess. Her praise was sweet to him then, and she saw that it was grateful to him now. You play wonderfully, Bob. It's a pity you couldn't have kept on. We can't do as we please in this world, he said, throwing himself into a chair and reaching for the cigarettes. But I get a lot of fun out of my music. I'm not sorry I stuck to it as I did from the time I could stretch an octave. Are you spending the night with Miss Reynolds? No, we're not quite that chummy. Miss Reynolds said she'd send me home. Not on your life she won't. I'm going to run you out in my roadster. That's settled. I don't have to show up at home till midnight, so there's plenty of time. You and Cousin Beulah seem to get on famously. Grace gave a vivacious account of the beginning of her acquaintance with Miss Reynolds. Not omitting the $10 tip, he laughed then frowned darkly. I've been troubled about this thing ever since I met you today, he said doggedly. You're having to quit college, I mean. I feel guilty, terribly guilty. Please, Bob, don't spoil my nice evening by mentioning those things again. I know it wasn't your fault. So let's go on being friends, just as though nothing had happened. Of course, but it's rotten just the same. You can hardly see me without... She raised her hand warningly. Bob, I'd be ashamed if anything could spoil our friendship. I'm perfectly satisfied that you had nothing to do with father's troubles, so please forget it. She won him back to good nature. She had always been able to do that, and they talked of old times, of the companions of their youth in the park neighborhood. This was safe ground. The fact that they were harking back to their childhood and youth emphasized the changed circumstances of both the Durlins and the Cummingses. It didn't seem possible that he was married. It struck her suddenly that he didn't appear at all married. And with this came the reflection that he was the kind of man who should never marry. He should have kept himself free. He had too much temperament for a harmonious married life. You don't know Evelyn, he remarked a little absently. And then, as though Grace's not knowing Evelyn called for an explanation, he added, she was away at school for a long time. What's she like, Bob? Grace asked. A man ought to be able to draw a wonderful picture of his wife. He should indeed. Let me see. She's fair, blue eyes, tall, slender, likes to have something doing, wins golf cups, a splendid dancer. "'Oh, pshaw, you wouldn't get any idea from that,' he said with an uneasy laugh. "'She's very popular. People like her tremendously. "'I'm sure she's lovely, Bob. Is she musical?' "'Oh, she doesn't care much for music. My practicing bores her. "'She used to sing a little, but she's given it up.' "'He hadn't said that he hoped she might meet Evelyn, "'and for a moment Grace resented this.' She was a saleswoman in a department store, and Evelyn had no time for an old friend of her husband who sold ready-to-wear clothing. A snob, no doubt, self-centered and selfish. Bob's failure to suggest a meeting with his wife made it clear that he realized the futility of trying to bring them together. "'You haven't missed me a bit,' cried Miss Reynolds, appearing suddenly. "'Is the music all over?' "'Oh, we've been reminiscing,' said Grace. "'And you missed the best of Bob's playing.' I'm sorry those people chose tonight for their call. It was Judge Sanders, my lawyer, and his wife, old friends, but I didn't dare smoke before them. You've got to stay now while I have a cigarette. When Grace said presently that she must go and Miss Reynolds reached for the bell to ring for her car, Bob stayed her hand. That's all fixed. I'll run around and bring my car and I'll take Grace home. Please say you don't mind. Of course I don't mind. But you needn't think you're establishing a precedent. The next time Grace comes, I'll lock the door against you and all the rest of the world. While Bob went for his car, Miss Reynolds warned Grace that she was likely to ask her to the house again. You'll be doing a favor by coming, dear. And remember, if there's ever anything I can do for you, you're to tell me. That's a promise. I should be sorry if you didn't feel that you could come to me with anything. 8. It's only a little after ten, said Bob as he started the car, and I'm going to touch the edge of the country before I take you home. Is that all right? How long's it been since we went driving together? Centuries. It was just after you moved. I was afraid you'd forgotten. I remember the evening perfectly. We stopped at the country club to dance and just played around by ourselves. But we did have a good time. His spirits were soaring. Through his talk ran an undercurrent of mischievous delight in his freedom. It's just bully to see you again, he repeated several times. While I was playing, I kept thinking of the royal fun we used to have. Do you remember that day our families had a picnic? We were just kids then, and you and I wandered away and got lost looking for wildflowers or whatever the excuse was and a big storm came up, and our mothers gave us a good raking when we came back all soaked, and everybody was scared for fear we'd tumbled into the river. To Grace, the remembrance of this adventure was not nearly so thrilling as the fact that Bob, now married, still chortled over the recollection, and was obviously delighted to be spending an evening with her while his wife enjoyed herself in her own fashion at home. He would probably not tell Evelyn that he had taken the daughter of his father's old business associate driving, a girl who clerked in a department store and was clearly out of his social orbit. Here was another episode which Grace knew she dared not mention at home. Ethel and her mother would be horrified, but Grace was happy in the thought that Bob Cummings still found pleasure in her company even if she was number 18 at Shipley's, and took and accepted tips from kindly disposed customers. He halted the car at a point which afforded a broad sweep of moonlit field and woodland. You know, Grace, sometimes I've been hungry and positively homesick for a talk with you such as we've had tonight. Please drive on. You mustn't say things like that. Well, that's the way I feel anyhow. It's queer how I haven't been able to do anything I wanted to with my life. I'm like a man who's been pushed on a train he didn't want to take and can't get off. Here again was his old eager appeal for sympathy. He was weak, she knew. With the weakness that is a defect of such natures, it would be perfectly easy to begin a flirtation with him, possibly to see him frequently in some such way as she saw him now. It was wrong to encourage him. But her curiosity as to how far he would go overcame her scruples. It would do no harm to lead him on a little. You ought to be very happy, Bob. You have everything to make you happy. I've made mistakes all down the line, he answered with a flare of defiance. I ought to have stood out against father when he put me into the business. I'm no good at it. But Merwin made a mess of things. Father's got him on a ranch out in Montana now, and Tom's got the bug to be a doctor and nothing can shake him. So I have to sit at a desk every day doing things I hate, and doing them badly, of course. And for the rest of it, he stopped short of the rest of it, which Grace surmised was his marriage to Evelyn. It was his own fault that he had failed to control and manage his life. He might have resisted his father when it came to going into business, and certainly it spoke for a feeble will if he had married to gratify his mother's social ambitions. She was about to bid him drive on when he turned toward her, saying, I feel nearer to you, Grace, than to anybody else in the world. It was always that way. It's got hold of me again tonight, that feeling I used to have that no matter what happened, you'd know, you'd understand." "'Those days are gone, Bob,' she said, allowing a vague wistfulness to creep into her tone. "'I mustn't see you anymore. We've both got our lives to live. "'You know that as well as I do. You're just a little down tonight. "'You always had moods like this when you thought the world was against you. "'It's just a mood and everything will look different tomorrow. "'But I've got to see you, Grace. Not often, maybe, but now and then. "'There will be some way of managing.' "'No!' she exclaimed, her curiosity fully satisfied as to how far he would go. "'I'll be angry with you in a minute. This is positively the last time.' "'Please don't say that,' he pleaded. "'I wouldn't offend you for anything in the world, Grace.' "'I know you wouldn't, Bob,' she said kindly. "'But there are some things that won't do, you know.' "'Yes, I know,' he conceded with the petulance of a child reluctantly admitting a fault.' I'm glad you still like me, but you know perfectly well this kind of thing's all wrong. I mustn't see you again. But Grace, what if I just have to see you? Oh, don't be so silly. You'll never just have to. You've got a wife to tell your troubles to. She wasn't sure that she wanted to make it impossible for him to see her again, or that she really preferred that he tell his troubles to his wife. His troubles were always largely imaginary due to his sensitive and impressionable nature. You needn't remind me of that, he said. Oh, start the car. Let's all be cheerful. We might as well laugh as cry in this world. Did you see the game Saturday? I had a suitor turn up from the university, and we had a jolly time. Who was he? Bob demanded savagely. Oh, Bob, you're a perfect scream. Well, you needn't be jealous of him. I'm jealous of every man, you know, he said. Now you're talking like a crazy man. Suppose I were to tell you I'm jealous of Evelyn. Please remember that you forgot all about me and married another girl quite cheerfully with a church wedding and flowers and everything. You needn't come to me now for consolation. She refused to hear his defense from this charge and mocked him by singing snatches of college songs till they were in town. "'When they reached the Durland house, she told him not to get out. "'I won't tell the family you brought me home. "'They wouldn't understand. "'Thanks ever so much, Bob.' "'Mrs. Durland and Ethel were waiting to hear of her evening with Miss Reynolds, "'and she told everything except that she had met Cummings there. "'She satisfied as quickly as possible, "'their curiosity as to Miss Reynolds and her establishment, "'and hurried to her room eager to be alone.' She assured herself that she could never love Bob Cummings, would never have loved him even if their families had remained neighbors, and it had been possible to marry him. He wasn't her type. The phrase pleased her. And in trying to determine just what type of man most appealed to her, Trenton loomed large in her speculations. Within a few weeks, she had encountered two concrete instances of the instability of marriage. Love, it seemed, was a fleeting thing and loyalty had become a byword. Bob was only a spoiled boy, shallow, easily influenced, yet withal, endowed with graces and charms. But graces and charms were not enough. She brought herself to the point of feeling sorry for Evelyn, who probably refused to humor and pet Bob and was doubtless grateful that he had music as an outlet for his emotions. It was something, though, to have found that he hadn't forgotten that there were times when he felt the need of her. She wondered whether he would take her word as final and make no further attempt to see her. 9. Grace addressed herself sincerely to the business of bringing all the cheer possible to the home circle. She overcame her annoyance at being obliged to recount the details of her work. Realizing that her mother spent her days at home and save for the small affairs of her club had little touch with the world beyond her dooryard. Ethel's days in the insurance office were much alike, and she lacked Grace's gift for making a good story out of a trifling incident. Even Mr. Durland enjoyed Grace's account of the whims and foibles of the women she encountered at Shipley's. Grace reasoned that so long as she lived at home, it would be a mistake not to make the best of things. But even in her fits of repentance, she had not regretted her assertion of the right to go and come unquestioned. In the week following, she left the house on two evenings, saying merely that she was going out. On one of these occasions, she returned a book to the public library. On another, she walked aimlessly for an hour. These unexplained absences were to determine whether her new one liberty was really firmly established. Nothing was said either by her mother or Ethel, though it was clear that they were mystified by her early return, though not to the point of asking where she had been. On a third evening, she announced at the table that she had earned a good bonus that day, and would celebrate by taking them all to the vaudeville. Mrs. Durland and Ethel gave plausible excuses for declining, but not without expressing their appreciation of the invitation in kind terms, and Grace and her father set off alone. In her cogitations, Grace was convinced that nothing short of a miracle could ever improve materially the family fortunes. They had the house free of encumbrance, but it needed re-roofing, and the furnishings were old and dingy. Mrs. Durland had worked out a budget by which to manage the family finances, and it was clear enough to Grace that what she and Ethel earned would just about take care of the necessary running expenses. Mrs. Durland had received for many years an income of $500 a year from her father's estate, and this, Grace learned, had always been spent on the family. The last payment had been put away, Mrs. Durland explained to her daughters, to help establish Roy after he completed his law course. It was impressed upon Grace constantly that all the hopes of bettering the family conditions centered on Roy. Ethel shared, though in less degree, her mother's confidence in the son of the house. Grace kept silent when Roy's prospects were discussed feeling that it would serve no purpose to express her feeling that Roy had no special talent for the law and even if he had the Durlins were without family or business connections that could possibly assist him in establishing himself ten grace's meeting with bob cummings served to sharpen her sense of social differentiations her mother had always encouraged the idea that the Durlins were a family of dignity entitled to the highest consideration, but stranded as they were in a neighborhood that had no lines of communication with polite society, Mrs. Durland now rarely received an invitation even to the houses of her old friends. Grace's excursions in social science had made her aware of the existence of such a thing as class consciousness, but she had never questioned that she belonged to the favored element The thought assailed her now that as a wage earning girl she had a fixed social status from which there was little likelihood she would ever escape. The daughters of prominent families she waited on at Shipley's were no better looking, no more intelligent, and had no better social instincts than she possessed. But she was as completely shut off from any contact with them as though she were the child of a Congo chieftain. With all her romanticism, she failed to picture the son of one of the first families making her acquaintance and introducing her to his family as the girl he meant to marry. Several young men with whom she became acquainted in Shipley's had asked her to go to dances or for Sunday drives. Irene sniffed when Grace reported these overtures. Oh, they're nice fellows, but what have they got to offer? They're never going to get anywhere. You can't afford to waste your time on them. However, Grace accepted one of these invitations. The young man took her to a public dance hall where the music was good, but the patron struck her as altogether uninspiring, and she resented being inspected by a police matron. She danced with her escort all evening, and then they went to a cafeteria for sandwiches and soda water. Irene had warned Grace that such young fellows were likely to prove fresh, that they always expected to kiss a girl good night and might even be insulting, but this particular young man was almost pathetically deferential. Grace was ashamed of herself for not inviting him to call, but she shrank from encouraging his further attentions. He might very easily become a nuisance. Again, she went to Rosemary Terrace, a dance and supper place on the edge of town in company with a young man who carried a bottle on his hip to which he referred with proud complacency as though it were the symbol of his freedom as an American citizen. The large dance hall was crowded. The patrons were clearly the worse for their indulgence in the liquor carried by their escorts. The dancing of many of the visitors was vulgar. The place was hot and noisy and the air heavy with tobacco smoke. Grace's young man kept assuring her that the rosemary was the sportiest place in town. You didn't see any dead ones there. His desire to be thought a sport would have been amusing if he hadn't so strenuously insisted upon explaining that he was truly of the great company of the elect, to whom the laws of God and man were as nothing. When Grace asked to be taken home, he hinted, that there were other places, presumably even less reputable, to which they might go. But he did not press the matter. When, reaching the Durland gate, he tried to kiss her, and she, to mark the termination of their acquaintance, slapped him. These experiences were, she reflected, typical of what she must look forward to unless she compromised with her conscience and accepted Irene's philosophy of life. She had replied immediately to Trenton's letter from St. Louis with a brief note which she made as colorless as possible. She knew that it was for her to decide whether to see more of him or drop the acquaintance. He was not a man to force his attentions upon any young woman if he had reason to think them unwelcome. Hearing nothing from him for several days, she had decided that he had settled the matter himself, when she received a note explaining that he had been very busy but would start east the next day. He hoped she would dine with him on Thursday night and named the Indianapolis Hotel where her reply would reach him. Don't turn him down, exclaimed Irene when Grace told her Trenton was coming. He wouldn't ask you if he didn't want you. Tommy skipped for New York last night, so it's a safe bet that Ward's stopping on purpose to see you. I don't know, began Grace doubtfully. Oh, have a heart. There's no harm in eating dinner with a married man in a hotel where you'd get by even if all your family walked in and caught you. Of course Tommy can't appear with me at any public place here at home, but it's different with you and Ward. He doesn't know a dozen people in town. I wouldn't want to offend him, Grace replied slowly, a prey to uncertainty. But she withheld her acceptance until the morning of the day of Trenton's arrival. 11. When she reached the Hotel Sycamore at seven o'clock, he was waiting for her at the entrance. On time to the minute, he exclaimed. I took you at your word that you'd rather not have me call for you. Thanks, but it was easier this way, she answered. He had been so much in her thoughts, and she had considered him from so many angles that at first she was shy in his presence. But by the time they were seated in the dining room, her diffidence was passing. He appeared younger than at the shack, but rather more distinguished. It might have been the effect of his dinner coat, and she noticed that he was the only man in the room who had dressed for dinner. You've been busy, of course, and I've been up to my eyes in work, he said, so we'll dismiss business. Shall we talk of the weather, or see what we can do to save the world from destruction? Oh, I have had a lot of ideas about things since I saw you, she said. Half of them were right, and half wrong. ''Oh,'' he exclaimed, ''our old friend Conscience.'' ''Yes,'' she replied, meeting his gaze squarely. ''I've been trying to decide a thousand questions, but I've got nowhere.'' ''Terrible, but I'm glad to find out that you're so human. Most of us are like that. Honest now, you weren't at all sure you wanted to see me tonight.'' ''No,'' she assented under his smiling gaze. ''I didn't send the answer to your note till nearly noon.'' "'so I noticed from the hotel stamp on the envelope. "'But I'd have been very much disappointed if you'd refused.' "'His tone was too serious for comfort. "'She felt that she must have a care lest he discover the attraction he had for her. "'Oh, you'd have got over it. You know you would. "'You needn't have dined alone. Tommy's out of town, but there's Irene. "'Much as I admire Irene, she would be no substitute. "'I was sincerely anxious to see you again.' If only to make sure you were still on earth. Oh, I have no intention of leaving it. She was finding it easy to be flippant with him. Whatever liking he had for her was no doubt due to the seriousness she had manifested in their talk at the shack. And the effect of that talk had been to awaken a sympathy and interest on both sides. In her case, she knew that it was trifle more than that. She was sorry now that she had kissed him. She was puzzled that she had ever had the courage to do it, though it was such a kiss as she might have given any man older than herself in the same circumstances. She had heard of women, very young women, who were able to exert a strong influence upon men much older than themselves. She felt for the first time the power of sex. At least she had never before thought of it in the phrases that now danced through her brain. If he was annoyed not to find her... As interesting and agreeable as at the shack, he was successful in concealing his disappointment. He continued to be unfailingly courteous, meeting her rejoinders with characteristic mockeries until she began to feel ashamed of her lack of friendliness. He deserved better of her than this. We're going to the theater, did you know that? He asked toward the end of dinner, and we're going to be fashionably late stolen stars oh that's perfectly marvelous she exclaimed i've been just dying to see it then it's lucky that you can live and see it through the performance the thought kept recurring to her that he meant to be kind no one had ever been so kind or shown her so flattering a deference as ward trenton she was proud to be sitting beside him when the lights went up after the first act a buzz of talk in one of the boxes drew her attention and she caught a glimpse of Bob Cummings at the same moment he saw her and bowed. There were six in the party, and she decided that Bob's wife was the young woman he most rarely addressed. Evelyn was not beautiful. She was gratified to have Trenton's confirmation of her opinion on this point when she directed his attention to the box party. I'll be here for several days, said Trenton when they reached the Durland house, and he stood for a moment on the doorstep. Could you give me another evening? Tomorrow night I'm tied up with a business appointment, but may we say day after tomorrow? Yes, she assented. But isn't there danger of seeing too much of me? I'll take the risk, he said, and thank you ever so much. She fell asleep, glad that she was to see him again. End of Section 7